Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. Having broken into a secretive warehouse to steal samples of a mysterious pharmaceutical, Nab is caught by its operators and will soon face the biggest test of his life in Episode 6, The Conclusion of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. stood in the warehouse office, surrounded by a handful of workers, and others of a decidedly different temperament. One fellow in particular, who flanked Miss Steg, and more than matched her when it came to personal flair. He was a shortish fellow, with a crop of thick silver-red hair. In his late fifties, he didn't resemble your slovenly warehouse help at all. In fact, he looked far from the work-with-your-hands type, and was fairly pear-shaped, leading me to believe I was standing face to face with one Ward Beechard, senior political advisor to the Atostoliks. So, Miss Stegg, this was the fellow you came across at Ashland? That's him. I thought there was something peculiar about the police follow-up, and here I was told they booked you. They did. And so how did you get away then? <laughs> I'm a master of escape. What can I say? It's what you can say that is precisely the reason we brought you in here, young man. Uh, come again? Obviously, Baltimore's finest were given orders to release you. So tell us, for whom do you work? Well, the CEB. Uh-huh. No, really. That's still part of the government, Ward. The Satellite Intelligence Branch? That would be scraping the bottom of the barrel, wouldn't it? Bottom of the barrel? Beecher turned to the giant workman who'd brought me in. Jim, have him unload his pockets. And the backpack. You heard him, mister. I didn't at first, hesitating and figuring that if I did, I'd give up the game entirely. You got something wrong with your hearing? Do I have to repeat everything twice to you? No. Then get with it. I breathed out and emptied both my pockets. The result of which was the phone and my pending rescue call, now lying on the desk before me and further out of reach than I cared for. Even as I placed the phone on the desk, I kept debating whether to punch the button and summon T right then. But if I did, I knew I wouldn't get any more information from Beecher and the others, and I'd probably lose our one chance at getting to the bottom of this. The backpack too, mister. I unzipped it and pulled out the liquid packs, setting them down with a belligerent smack on the desk. Ms. Steg and Beecher traded looks. Thank you, Jim, you can go. The rest of you too. Miss Steg and I can handle this. The other three filed out, including Big Jim McDo what I say, whom I instantly began to miss. Mostly because no sooner had the big guy gone, than Beecher decided to play fair and started digging stuff out of his own pockets, the first item being a small gun. He toyed with it casually, till the nasty end wound up pointed in my direction. I started raising my hands. Heavens to gladiolas, down with the hands, young man. I simply desire a talk. This pernicious pea-shooter is merely a safety precaution, given that our physical help, like Mr.'s Jim and friends, now dally without. Beechert had a stubby cigar in his mouth that appeared more chewed on than smoked, a pair of big round spectacles, and a droopy face that would have seemed almost comic if I had been the one holding the gun. 
clad in a snappy bow tie, silk vest, and a tweed coat, with a red carnation stuck in the buttonhole of its lapel. He seemed a throwback, a member of the old Algonquin round table, who traded in the spurs and sparks of that circle for the stimuli of political ones instead. Despite his aromatic speech, however, I detected a distinct toughness underneath, as if I was up against a rhino with a hide of flowers. I suppose formal introductions are in order first, anyhow. I imagine you know who I am. Ward Beechert. Ward Bellamy Aldwin Beechert III, of late of the cadre of the Atostelix, and as you've likely surmised, not one of your more Olympian specimens, flabby biceps and all. However, what I lack in testosterone, I make up for in marksmanship, verbal and otherwise. Now your turn to play. Your name, young man? Nab. Very good. You see, Agent Nab, I am trying to divine just how much you know of our operation and how much they told you. For it's likely they did not divulge everything. In other words, I'm trying to end this without bloodshed. But if forced, I will have no choice. Do forgive me. Sure. However, if you're an intelligent chap, you could be precisely what we require right now. How do you figure? You could come over to our side, play double agent. I'm guessing you're not aware of the full story. Very few are. Which is? Beecher looked at me a long moment, like he was reading a book. It started making me nervous causing me to glance at my candies on the desk. I always went for them when feeling antsy, or when feeling like I might get shot. Care for a Cherilisi, Agent Nab? By my count, you've looked at them five times since their confiscation. Well, if you wouldn't mind. Be my guest. I got one out and popped it in my mouth, making short work of it. Surprisingly, Beechert waited patiently until I'd finished. Care for another? Yeah, I would, but... I'll wager you always keep them on hand, don't you? Yeah. You probably can't imagine being without them, as if they're a part of you, as welcome as a drink of water or a breath of fresh air, and always a comfort. It's probably terribly rare if you even go a day without partaking of their delicious goodness. With every sentence Beechard uttered, a new chill ran through me, until by the time he finished, my face had frozen, my words too. <laughs> Delightful! I suspected you weren't in on all of it. In fact, would you mind terribly if I had dipped in as well? <laughs> You're the one with a gun. Ward. My dear, giving in this once is no sign of weakness. I'm afraid our Miss Degg understands, yet doesn't approve, which is, given everything, frankly, shameful. Here's another one for you too, Agent Nab. Beechert, how do you know all this about the Cherilises? Decades back, young man, long before you were born even, competition in the marketplace had become quite fierce. Uh, so? Your Park Avenue lot... Firms, marketers, advertisers, et al. began focusing on consumers at younger and younger ages, eventually discovering that even toddlers could recognize brands. And so they began pitching commercials with these younger viewers in mind. They figured 
Little Jimmy and Sally would remember the item while in Mum's sweet bosom and recall it subconsciously with all their other memories of warmth and security from that time, either asking their parents to later buy the item for them or purchasing it themselves once they had funds of their own. Delectably degenerate, eh? Several European countries long ago placed a moratorium on pitching commercial woo at children, but not here. As his words settled in my brain, I glanced at the Inox drugs on the desk, a darkness suddenly filling my insides. So let me guess, these marketing groups got even smarter, didn't they? Bingo, young man. Which was the reason for these liquid packs you tucked into your backpack. The Inox program afforded them the greatest bluebird of all. Bluebird? Part of the lingo of marketeers like Miss Steg here. A sales opportunity of unprecedented dimension. A commercial cornucopia. So then it really wasn't inoculations at all? Oh no, it was, oddly enough. They simply added additional agents. And created built-in consumers. Well, I suppose they're always built-in. It's just now a person's aligned, shall we say, towards particular products, certain brands, before they're even born. How? How's that even possible? Mr. Nab, it's necessary to reverse your thinking in order to grasp the theories behind the method. For instance, why do we, as adults, gravitate toward children? And not just children, but the young of other animals as well. Something about the facial characteristics attracts us, the bone structure. Even babies are mesmerized by images of other babies. It's how we're wired inside, the byproduct of millions of years of evolution, creating a neural network that ensures the survival of our offspring, and consequently, our species. Our bodies are created with many triggers like these. And, and so you changed these triggers? Oh, goodness, no. They were simply given new jobs. Steg leaned a svelte hip against the other side of the desk, her hand resting next to my phone, precariously close to the button to tee. She stopped suddenly, looking down. She'd spied something on the table, part of the contents of my pockets. Two things, actually. Ashlyn's white entry cards, which I'd swiped from Petey during our ride back to the station. Steg held them up before me, as if evidence. As I said back in our first encounter, Mr. Nab, eventually I always get what I want. And with dividends besides. Two of them. Why, thank you, Mr. Nab. As I was saying, for researchers, it was simply a matter of finding where those triggers were located and flipping them like little computer switches. Thus, you don't need to make the product itself addictive, as they once did with cigarettes. Only the urge itself. With some recreational drugs, you need only use them but once to get hooked. With this, you start out hooked. Now, all you needed was visual identity and consumer access to the product. Because whether they liked it or not, every man, woman, and child had already opted in. It sounded like she'd studied marketing at West Point. I shook my head. I'd always wondered why there were far fewer ads now than in the old days. Here it had been just another dead canary, like so many other odd things in our world. The obsolete idea of bigger and better, the improbable success of networks like the old Vic, the muddled thinking of everyone around me, meant to generate more impulse buying and strengthen advertisers' powers of persuasion. 
I looked at the Cherilesis again, and as much as part of me still wanted one, the rest of me wanted to vomit. For the second time in my life, I'd found myself to be a tool, a marketing stooge. It made me feel less human. It made me feel dirty. You see, the first wave of Inox Pharmaceuticals years back had some impact, as in our taste for Cherilesis, an added plus being that the items later acted as security blankets of a sort. But in other areas, the drugs proved less than effective. As a result, a certain percentage of the populace, like yourself, if I guess rightly, weren't as won over by the imprinting as the clients would have liked. Thus, persons like us remain outside the mainstream, more objective, and so the markets remain slightly open. But a movement is currently underway in certain circles to close that gap and to put an end to competition permanently. When finished, monopolies imposed by a willing public will prevail and the marketplace as we know it will effectively cease to exist. Something Miss Degg and her associates are not particularly happy about, for they will find themselves out of a job. How perfect. So that's what these liquid packs of yours are for? To counteract the consumerist imprinting? Not exactly. But why? Then it dawned on me just who I was talking to. Ward Beechert, special advisor to an all-but-dead political party. The rooms in Ham's house came to mind instantly, my brain clicking. These groups didn't just stop with commercial products, did they, Beechert? The centrist party desired no risk elections. They now rule without contention. That's the beauty of the Inox Pharmaceuticals. They give the illusion of choice, the feeling of free will. <laughs> so then you plan to eventually ship your Inox drugs out and switch them for theirs? Actually, most have already been delivered. It is simply a waiting game now, tooth and nail, in hopes we are not discovered. These particular Inox Pharmaceuticals, the ones here on the table, are designed to be administered as boosters. Children will receive them at age one or thereabouts. If we dared to attempt to switch or replace the original Inox Pharmaceuticals, we'd doubtless be discovered. But all you're doing is simply flipping things around the other way. Unfortunately, tests have shown it's the only way to fight the imprinting. Once it's part of a person's physical makeup, it can't be erased, only replaced with a stronger imprint. Terrific. It explained Ham's odd condition a little more. The Institute had likely used the pharmaceuticals to imprint him with two extreme ideological beliefs, administered months apart, to see if his mind could make the switch. But his Addison's disease had gotten in the way. Megan, on the other hand, had likely been part of a different analysis type, a test meant to rewire the subject's conditioning toward physical products. So you see, Agent Nab, our choices in this matter are few. We can't tell the people, of course. It could bring all of us to the guillotine. For how could they trust anything anymore? Or anyone? Like moi, for instance. He was right. Here I wanted to believe Beechard in everything he'd said, but if I did, I'd never believe anyone ever again. I shook my head, confused. Um, you do realize the scope of your plan is a bit small, don't you? After all, you're going to have quite a wait before your subjects reach voting age. Fear not, young fellow. 
what you've stumbled on is but a portion of our project. Measures are currently underway to realign the adults of the populace as well. How? I think the finer points of that plan are best left unspoken. It's enough you'd be aware only of what we've told you. Beechert's gun handling grew more serious suddenly. I looked at my phone again, thinking maybe I could distract him and punch the button to T, neatly putting the decision out of my hands. Unfortunately, before I could think to grab it, Beechert quickly scooped up my phone. He looked at it, then at Miss Steg, and then back at me again. Expecting a call, Agent Nab? You seem a bit fixated on this instrument. Have a change of heart now, Ward? <clears throat> yes, my dear. Alas, I fear you were right all along. I suppose its implementation would act as a double safety, given we've come to the moment of truth for our friend here. Beechert glanced my way, then walked to the other side of the office, opening the cover of what looked like a fancy fuse box. He produced a key and inserted it into a round receptacle in its casing, turning it. A light on the panel beside the key flipped from red to green, and a gentle but unsettling hum rubbed at the air. Instantly, my skin began to crawl, a dark feeling sweeping over me. Afterward, Mr. Ward Bellamy Odwin Beechert III got handy with his pistol again, pointing it my way, the twinkle in his eye turning dark. This box you see here is our own little security blanket, Agent Nab. Miss Stegg had been insisting we engage some security measures here, fearing interlopers like yourself. These are the big boys we're dealing with, after all. I was against any unnecessary and, unfortunately, violent tactics. But your appearance and your fascination with this communication device has, I'm afraid, driven home Miss Stegg's point and rendered our little blanket here a necessary evil, at least until the last of the Inox pharmaceuticals are safely en route. Now, with the device activated, even if you were to attempt some foolhardy escape, you would not make it 20 feet out that door. I'm afraid the system is terribly unkind to unauthorized individuals like yourself, and would make the payload of something as nasty as my little gun here feel more akin to a mosquito bite. So please, I beseech you, no heroics. Just a simple answer to my offer will suffice. The better parts of my brain faded out all of a sudden. All I could think of was T and the boys, and what would happen to them if they attempted any sort of raid and rescue operation. It took the wind out of me. I glanced at my watch. I probably had two minutes tops before they decided to storm in on their own volition, maybe less, stumbling right into a gigantic firing squad. Beechert held up my phone so I could see its face. Now, to make your decision a little easier, Agent Nab, and dismiss any other untoward options from your mind, I'll just turn this little temptation off. I gasped a little, trying to swallow, but not finding the saliva to do it. One thing was certain, whatever else happened, I didn't want there to be any others like me ever again, even if it meant me getting shot or killed. Mr. Beechert, if I help you and agree to feed my superiors false information, Will you leave the children alone? Leave them out of it. Hmm. Once we come to power, Agent Nab, I promise you, 
I shall do all I can to stop the Enox program. There was no second from Ms. Steg, just that awkward silence that follows lies and half-truths. Whether Beechert was in on it or not, I had a feeling Steg and her higher-ups had cut other deals to keep the program going in at least a status quo capacity. To her, this was merely about trading masters. Despite Steg, I wanted to believe Beechert desperately, but deep down, I just couldn't anymore. I certainly wasn't for the old way under the centrists, but I had no guide and zero time. I hadn't come up with the first word of my reply when, unbeknownst to Beechert, I saw my phone's blue face magically light back up again, a telephone number starting to scroll across its little screen. The precincts. Christ. A wave of cold crashed over me, my palms run with sweat, my temple burning. Mr. Beechert, can I make a call? <laughs> Please, just one. Sorry, young man. He still hadn't noticed the phone had come back on, but I'd run out of options. If I told him the truth and explained who I was really working for, considering everything they'd already divulged to me, Beecher would probably be forced to shoot me on the spot. If I said nothing, it would be T, Petey, and the others who'd never make it home. My only choice was to somehow get the phone back by way of another tack. Look, Mr. Beechert, I'm afraid you may not be aware of the full story either. Do tell. Your Inox Pharmaceuticals, they aren't exactly healthy. People have died from using them. That's how I got involved in this in the first place. What's he talking about, Miss Stegg? There was really only one incident, a Mr. Ham. No, actually, there were two. The second was a young man, former holder of that other white card you now have, Miss Stegg. He was practically a boy, a senator's son, Charles Megan's kid. He got swept up in your little program, too. Chuck Megan's son? Beecher turned to look at Steg, heat in his eyes. I didn't have the luxury of more mental wrangling. I had one eye on the phone, its blue screen still lit. I had no choice but to get physical. I lunged for him. Ward, look out! My aim was to get the phone, but in trying to dodge Beechert's gun, it made my efforts clumsy, and I hit him side on. Both of us fell, the phone sliding away. The gun, too. I couldn't see where the pistol had gone, but I'd seen the phone. I raced for it, but even as I picked it up, there was a gunshot. I felt a burning sensation in my side, near my stomach. Whereas I'd initially followed my phone, Beechert had apparently spied where his pistol had disappeared to. I fumbled with the phone, dropping it on the floor, its casing bouncing out of sight, lost. I knew I was next on the floor, with me lost as well, which left me one last card to play. I spotted a hammer sitting atop one of the filing cabinets. I lurched forward and scooping it up, brought it to bear on that fancy fuse box. Sparks exploded around me, just as another blast sounded. And suddenly I knew more than felt a second bullet hit me. My legs buckled and I collapsed in one terrible mass on the floor. Beechert was swearing, holding his gun now. He came to stand over me, his one free hand pulsing in and out, into a fist and back again, a look of anguish on his face. Young man, my apologies. Truly, I did not want to do that. But you gave me no choice. Are you badly hurt? Before I could answer, I heard shouts outside, and then a crash sounded. The office door of the warehouse burst open, and in bounced PDT and the others. Beecher swung around with his gun. I shouted at T to stop, but I was too late. The bullets hit Beecher and he fell back onto the floor. 
As my body grew cold, a pool of red warmth began forming on the cement floor. But in all the confusion, I couldn't tell if it was from me or Beechert or both of us. I turned my head in his direction, glancing at his motionless figure. My apologies to you too, Mr. Beechert. And that was the last I remembered before the lights above me turned to tiny sparklers of yellow and a wave of black rushed over my senses. When I came to, I was being loaded onto a gurney, on my way to an ambulance apparently. T and Petey hovered over me. How are you feeling, Nab? What happened, Petey? You got shot, don't you remember? Petey, I'm hurt, not brain dead. You got a bullet in the side, Nab, and one in the thigh. We're taking you to the hospital now. What about Steg? Who? The woman. What woman? The one from Ashland. She must have heard you coming and got out the back. Don't worry, we'll find her. Unfortunately, I wasn't as confident as T about that. Steg seemed the meticulous sort, the kind who probably always had an exit plan. As she'd said, things usually came back her way in the end. Perhaps she knew that could mean for better or worse. So chances were she typically made sure she was ready for such eventualities when the time came. Wherever she had gotten off to, though, most likely, T and the boys were going to come up empty-handed. Nab, the other guy's in critical condition. You mean Beecher's not dead? No, looks like his chances are 50-50. <sighs> Thank God. What happened in there? I paused. They didn't know. Which meant maybe nobody knew but me. I closed my eyes suddenly, feigning more pain than I felt, groaning a little to make it convincing. Are you all right, Nab? I feel tired. It's hard to talk right now. I need sleep. It was something the boys owed me plenty of anyway. I wasn't sure what information to give out. Tell them about the Inux program? Tell them Matthew Megan might have been inadvertently killed by those trying to stop something his senator daddy likely had a hand in in the first place? Tell them about Beechert's plans? Tell them nothing? find Steg myself and force them to eradicate the whole Inox operation and do so without getting myself killed in the process or take my chances and go to the press with the story. I just didn't know. Worse though was that Beechert's confessions had left me raw and I wasn't sure I could trust anyone, even T sadly. After all, I'd suspected for a while that the Enigma boys were occasionally on the take with certain private sector big shots possibly even with a few government bureaus. And whatever I decided to do, if there was even the slightest slip, it could come crashing down on us all. Nab, can you tell us anything? I, I, um, not. Damn it, Nab. I closed my eyes as they loaded me into a waiting ambulance, making the interview's end official for the moment. I knew my delays couldn't last forever, but I was hoping to at least milk it for a few days, and then afterward tell T, well, whatever I was going to tell T. In the end, I might not make the right decision necessarily, 
but whatever I chose, I'd definitely give it some quality thought. The preceding story was inspired by a national public radio report that some marketing companies are now targeting children under two years of age after discovering they can recognize brands. So ends episode six of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. The cast included Tom Fahey as Petey, Michael Berenger as the warehouse worker, Maggie Irvin as the narrator, Cindy Rasmussen as Ms. Steg, Rick Sallow as Sergeant Tehackett, the incredible Jeffrey Hoffman as Ward Beechert, and in a performance that would have made Alfred Hitchcock smile with evil glee, I, Michael McGee, played the part of Nab. The music heard here was by Jamie Sieber, Lee Mattiford, John Hallowack, Clouseau, Dynamedian, Devin Anderson, Van Westfold, Vincent Leeds, Kevin McLeod, and the Elizabeth Loninger Quartet, whose tune Beneath Your Surface you're currently listening to. The music used here was courtesy of sites like Magnatune, Jmendo, Podsafe Audio, CC Mixter, Internet Archive, SoundSnap, and the Podshow Podsafe Network at music.podshow.com. Most of the sound effects heard here were courtesy of SoundSnap at soundsnap.com. A full rundown of the musicians and song or composition names can be found on the music page of the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. So that's it for this episode. Check back with us or click that subscribe button or follow us to find out about the release of the first episode in the next story we'll be airing. This one, a humorous modern-day sci-fi tale set in San Francisco about an irresponsible ne'er-do-well playboy caught in a love affair he could have never imagined. In the story, Left Field. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain, and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians. It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun. <laughs>